This is the Modern Stoicism Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Today I'll be speaking with Anya Leonard. Anya is a founder and director of ClassicalWisdom.com, a website dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. She's also the host of Classical Wisdom Speaks, the official podcast of ClassicalWisdom.com. Today, we'll be speaking about reading the classics and what you as a Stoic can get from them. Anya, thank you very much for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So today, you and I were going to talk about the classics, and um, I'll backstop this um, topic by talking a little bit about an experience that I had um, about a week before we went into lockdown for the pandemic. So it was the uh, it was the first meeting for the Modern Stoicism Toronto group, and um, we were having a Q and A session, and I had a session part of the session where I was speaking to the audience, and I said um, to them, "Has anyone read?" say, Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or um, Donald Robinson's book, Robertson's book, excuse me, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And the hands were going up. And then I said, has anyone read Cicero? And there might have been three hands out of the roughly 60 people there. Or has anyone read Xenophon? And there's no hands up except for except for mine, not to, not to point that out, but just I was trying to see what the general audience reaction was going to be. And uh, when Anya and I were speaking about preparing for this podcast, we thought that a great topic would be to talk about classics and why it's st- still very important to read them today. Um, and relating that back to um, why the classics are, are important for us as practitioners of Stoicism. Yes. Is that I, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the um, the reading the classics is just very fulfilling on many, many levels. And it's funny you mentioned Xenophon, for instance. Uh, anybody who graduates from the Naval Academy will have definitely had read that because of the information that you can learn from ancient history is just so essential. But that also just reading the original texts are illuminating. And you, it's really important to be able to read those original texts yourself and interpret them the way you want to uh, and that you understand it. It's It uses your brain in a whole nother level than just sort of being told, this is the gist of this guy. You know what I mean? You, you really interact with the, the text in a just a completely another level. Oh, absolutely. I, I have to agree. I mean, there's a context to the time in which stoicism formed that you don't get if you don't consider the classics uh that we're speaking about um an example that you and i were speaking about before we started the recording was in regard to the contemplation of the sage for example where um when we speak of a sage many people will come up with their own which is totally okay but in the context of the original stoics that began this practice they would have been speaking of um, mythological persons like Heracles and Zeus um, and even uh, Ulysses. So certainly um, you can you can definitely garner a greater understanding by understanding the stories of the time period that, in which this um, practice really began. So so um, I think we should take a step back before we really deep dive, though, Anya. And um, I'm going to ask for. I'm going to ask you as sort of the classicist between the two of us, um, when we say the word classics, what are we, what are we really talking about here? 
Well, I loosely think of the classics as sort of 12th century BC to about 300 AD. Um, and I like to bookend it with sort of the time period of Homer's uh, twin epics, Iliad and the Odyssey, straight up to basically the end of the Roman Empire and sort of the rise of Christianity. Uh, so that's sort of the time period of ancient history as was defined for thousands, well, hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, just to, to your last point, too, to remind people that up until the 19th century, you couldn't be considered educated unless you had studied the classics. Uh, and so as a result, every single writer and poet and, and philosopher really referenced the classics heavily. So not only did the actual Stoics in their day and age study you know, this, this time period and, I mean, and, and know the references of the gods and such like that. But, but later philosophers and later thinkers all reference this time period as well. So you're going to really get a better understanding of not only Stoicism, but just about <laughs> most subsequent philosophies uh, if you study this time period. And I think it's also really important to point out that when we speak about the classics, we aren't simply speaking of Greco-Roman writings. There's a whole classical world that um, places like your website, classicalwisdom.com, um, puts out there for its readers. And and I highly recommend that website for someone who's interested in it. I mean, you know, there are writings from Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and um, all over the map for the classical world, which certainly... I think really speak to the fact that it was a whole world of its own. There was not simply these two countries that most people tend to focus on. Am, am I really right in interpreting that? Well, the Greco-Roman world is, it's interesting because it basically is like described as sort of the, pond, the little frog sitting around a pond. And so it sort of spans the entire Mediterranean. Now, when you mention Alexandria, a lot of the time period of Alexandria, which we would be discussing, would be when it was under Roman rule. So it's not Greece and Rome as we know it, because both Greece and Rome had huge empires that covered massive amounts of territory. So all of Spain, for instance, um, where uh, you would remember is the birthplace of um, Seneca, the younger, a famous philosoph uh, Stoic philosopher, that was, that was Rome. I mean, it was Roman, not Rome which is an important difference, but also that the, the whole Mediterranean, they didn't live in just these tiny bubbles. They interacted with their whole region, you know, this, the same way we do today. So if you were to try to understand Greece and Rome, understanding uh, the ancient Egyptian cultures, they were heavily influenced by them, as well as Persia, um, as well as the Gauls and, and the Celts. And, you know, the, the whole region, everybody was in and out of, war or partnerships or empires. So yeah, nobody lived in a bubble. So then looking at the writings that are available to someone, I think we should probably talk a little bit about where do we think someone should start? Because there's, there's, you know, I think when some people think about this world, they consider it as simply philosophical writings or or religious writings in some way, but there's there's a, all of these genres that fulfill this huge, you know, um, cornucopia of of types of texts that are available for people to read. There are certainly um, political writings, speeches, and 
um, essays on the situations of the time. There are also things like plays and um, poetry and all of these things. So if you, I mean, as someone who um, is a uh, provider of classical wisdom from, from your website and whatnot, what, where do you think someone should start? Well, I guess it's, it's sort of depending on the who we're asking this question about. So, for instance, if you're just talking about Stoicism and you want to understand more about Stoicism, uh, I might even say Marcus Aurelius simply because he's so accessible and he really kind of captures a, a kind of a wide breadth of Stoicism. And unfortunately, the first two earlier periods of, of Stoicism, we don't really have any complete writings from. And those earlier authors are only referenced um, by the later Stoics. So to understand that specific time period, I mean, that specific philosophy, it does make sense to, to read Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius with some of those um, books because uh, authors, because they are so enjoyable and they're really, really a wonderful first step. Um, for understanding the world of the classics in general, I would say again and again, start at the beginning and read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, there is a reason that those two books have existed as long as they have. They, are, they have been duplicated so faithfully, so continuously. There are so many beautiful translations that are still coming out now that make it really accessible to the modern reader. And um, I just read, for instance, um, the Emily Wilson translation. And even having read the the Odyssey so many times, I still found myself like enthralled anew uh, and raptured and in suspense and just completely involved. Uh, you think that because, you know, there's these gods and it's mythological that you're going to have this hard time crossing that barrier, that, that transversing time, that huge gauntlet of you know, over 2,000, well, sorry, much more, th almost 3,000 years. And yet, at the same time, it's it's just a really, really, really good story. And the Iliad and the Odyssey are the foundations of the entire Greco-Roman world. They, they, it influenced every single subsequent author and poet and philosopher, and they would all have known it through and through. It's like, trying to understand Western culture and not looking at the Bible or knowing anything about it. It, it really was fundamental to the ancient world. So I am currently um, rereading the Odyssey. This time around, I am reading Emily Wilson's translation. And I, for listeners, I should say I recommend it wholeheartedly. It's, uh, it's definitely a major update of the translation. Um, it's, it's far more in the prose of today and feels like it so it's it's amazing to think that it's such an old story because it feels like a story you could tell yesterday for sure yeah and so. she really she really does a fantastic job of still keeping that sense of poetry um the imagery is so powerful uh you really it's it's a really i think she did a fantastic job i completely agree so let's actually take that book then, because uh, like you and I now have a baseline we can work with. And I think it's important to talk a little bit for our listeners about why why a book like The Odyssey um, can help someone understand the world in which um, practices like Stoicism or simply the, the classical world um, is kind of reflected in the in the story. 
Um, I don't know. I, I hope that makes sense to you what I'm asking. I mean, certainly um, it's a great book to kind of explain to you mythology and the relationship between humans and the gods. But I mean, I feel like there's so many more layers to it as well. Um, culturally speaking, um, for example, I think it tells you how people interacted with strangers, for example, which sounds like an interesting thing. But nowadays, it's very common for us as humans to kind of see other human beings when we go to work, when we are commuting to the office and we're on the the tram or on the bus. Um, and in this time period, humans were kind of spread apart. And so there's this whole level of culture, for example, in, in the Odyssey that you, I don't, I don't think many people would understand, which is where when a guest comes to a home in the, in the, the Grecian world, they certainly, they are lauded as guests. They are given the prime seat at the table. They're given gifts when they are sent off, for example. And there's a, so there's a whole cultural aspect of that. that I think you get from a book like that. Do you, do you think, do you, do you, do you think I'm right in this? Do you think that there's certainly so many layers there that you can learn from? Oh, it, humongously. I mean, completely agree, completely concur. And um, what you just referenced there is actually, it is considered, uh, xenia is the term for it. And um, that was very important to the ancient Greeks, especially in Homer's world. And xenia, it wasn't just a practice of hospitality, as we would sort of loosely translate it today. It was actually almost a religious ritual. Um, and it, And you didn't just follow the rules because that was what culture dictated. It was from fear even uh, that, that it would be a god in disguise. So the the god actually of foreigners and wanderers and the, the poor and hopeless, you know, was Zeus, Zeus Enya. So he, the, our main god that we always think of nowadays is sort of this kind of angry fellow, you know, dashing down thunderbolts here and there and having affairs everywhere. Uh, was also almost like a more like familiar a to well almost more familiar to us in is in regards to like a Jesus Christ kind of god you know that this sort of protector of of the foreigners and the travelers uh, mm-hmm. and the sort of the destitute so um it, it's a really important ritual in the ancient world and um, <clears throat> the the opposite of which of course is xenophobia which is a word that we probably recognize more um, and was considered a very ugly aspect then, as I would say now. And and certainly Xenia, um, as you describe it, it's certainly, it's spoken, it, it may not be referenced specifically as that word within the Stoic writings that people know today, but certainly Xenia and this general feeling, I mean, it speaks to, for example, the virtue of justice, this, you know, this, this we can call it hospitality. There isn't a great... I don't know that there's a great one word definition of it, but certainly, I mean, it speaks to that virtue. And so some people might say, where, you know, where do these virtues come from? Well, the culture in which practices like Stoicism come from, um, you know, those cultures are reflected in the practices of their citizens. And certainly, you know, I think this is a good example of where you can see that. I think another great example, too, is um, when we talk about sages, um, we can, I, I would easily say that. Ulysses or Odysseus, to use his Roman name, um, is certainly um, the kind of person that is referenced as a sage um, because of simply the hardships that he goes through and yet still continues moving forward. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's another lesson that people can take is that these stories weren't just for fun. They were to tell um, 
they were to tell the the children and the people of the culture um, what was important to them. And you you know Ulysses is is an important factor in that because he shows people that they they must persevere, they must keep going. Um, you know, there's one day you will return home. One day you will get that you know, joy of seeing your family again, and you just have to keep working hard and keep going. Yeah, perseverance is, is certainly a quality of Odysseus and uh, definitely one of his more admir admirable ones because he doesn't, not all of his qualities are uh, necessarily in the positive category. Uh, in fact, you could easily, easily argue that the only true and noble and good character in the Odyssey that, that is without flaw is Penelope. And um, she would have many virtuous qualities that I think the Stoics would be uh, approve of, approve on. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think it's interesting because Stephen Fry says it this way. He says, if I had to pick a god, I would pick the classical gods because they have anger and envy and fear and mistrust and and um, they're they're not they are not, they are sages in the funny way like Zeus is a sage for example but as you've already referenced he goes down and has many lovers within you know the peoples of the world that he that he commands but um, he is still used as a sage but he I guess what I'm saying is is you know a book like the Odyssey tells you that it's understood that people will have these foibles they will have these bad things happen to them but yet they can still do good things they can still have qualities that are okay to try and emulate in this case with with uh odysseus we're hoping that it's perseverance and not <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you're speaking of is like he he is a bit of a he's a bit of a liar he's a bit of a he's crafty. always seems to be scheming can you say that again he's he's crafty Oh, absolutely, and and it's a very interest. It's very interesting because because, like I said, many people talk of him as a, as a sage, but yet he has this funny side to it. But I think the one thing I would say, um, and you can you can tell me whether you agree or disagree with this, is he is a human being. He's very human. He he cries woe when he is you know grasping onto the broken pieces of his raft um, and scorns you know the gods and and the weather and all of those things that that throw him off but then when he lands on his homeland he turns into the person who thanks the gods and kisses the earth so he has so many foibles but it, it's such i mean it's i have to really say i recommend emily wilson's translation again because it i think it really comes out with the modernization of the text um yes, this yeah. real humanity to the character no he has a, a lot of emotion and he's definitely in touch with his emotion which you know is is i'm sure that's something that you always struggle with is trying to explain to people that the common term of Stoic is not reflective at all of the actual philosophy and that Stoics aren't supposed to not have emotion, um, but that, you know, you can still act on rationale rather than just on emotion. But that, but he is, he, he often is, is crying and, and upset and there's, there's death and, tragedy that befall him and his men and and they are very upset about it but there's definitely times when you know he kind of has to remind his men all right we've cried we got to move on though like let's get it together and get back on the ship and find our way home yeah and you find that you find that so much reflected in as you've already said the fact that you know he mourns his men and he has all these moments that are so oh they're so human I think in many ways people view him as this demigod or this 
you know, this character that has this, so many of these larger than life qualities. And I don't disagree that that's in there, but certainly there's, there's a real humanity to that. Um, and, and so I think it's important that we, as, you know, citizens of our own culture, uh, to keep in mind that, you know, people, people have feelings. We, you know, we have, there are so many influencers or political figures today that have now become, you know, so much in the forefront of what people talk about and, and, and we can look at what they do and yes, hope, hope to be emulate them as we, as we wish, but we can also, you know, accept the fact that these are human beings. These are people that may make a mistake. They may not get everything right. And certainly, um, you know, I think that's a lesson that can be learned and you can find that in writings like that. I, I, it's, you know, Odysseus is not Superman. He certainly is not, um, impervious to everything. He just simply does and gets on with it. And that's, that's very, yeah, it seems to be somewhat unique. So, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, was plays because I had someone actually ask me this recently where they said, should I read the plays of Sophocles? Should I read the Theban plays? And I, it was a very interesting question because when we talk about a book like the Odyssey, it very much, it reflects, it reflects so much the culture of its, of its time of the fact of like, there's a lot of regular day-to-day people in it. You know, Odysseus meets like a shepherd boy and he meets people on an Island. I mean, he meets the Cyclops that doesn't really count, but um, you know, he meets a lot of sort of regular people on his journey. But I wanted to ask about um, plays because plays are written by the writer to be a reflection of the culture that um, he or she, in this case, it'd probably be he. um, It's a reflection of the writer's view on the culture that he or she is in. At least that's the way that I see it. So when you think about plays, do you recommend those for people to read a lot? Oh, definitely. Um, And I guess it depends on your interest. If you want to have like more historical plays, the ones like the Persians or things like that, that really tell you exactly about the Greco-Persian War, and sometimes are, are your first primary sources in a way. Um, if you want to understand, like the Battle of Marathon, so you can you could definitely have sort of historical approach to the plays. But um, they also, again, they're really riveting. Like Oedipus Rex is probably one of the most famous of the Sophocles plays, and is one that you say everybody knows, like the Oedipus Complex and. And it, it, it's sort of more in our modern day discourse. And just from a writing narrative perspective and trying to see how the play is put together, everybody knows the ending. The play actually starts in Medieres of the story itself. The ancient Greeks would have all known the backstory, but even to modern listeners, the backstory is, is given in the beginning. So you, it's all kind of complete, even if you don't know the background. And you know what's going to happen, and yet you're still on the edge of your seat as you find out all the levels of atrocity that's happened along with Oedipus. It's it's riveting. Um, and it a lot of times people want to see these as, as a reflection of the culture, but it's actually a reflection of the deepest, darkest taboos of the culture. Uh, and those are the same taboos that we have today. And, and that a lot of these mythological stories sort of start off with a breaking of family values, a disruption between, you know, the father and the son. Uh, and, and that this sort of thing happens, it, it, it kind of starts off a chain reaction of, of very negative things that will happen. And you can see that 
in Oedipus Rex um, and the, the curse of the house of Atreus and, you know, these sort of continuous um, cycles. And so the Theban plays, it, it's very interesting because you have the three plays by Sophocles and they're not written as a trilogy per se. They were written at very different times and not in order, uh, but they do give you a good cycle because you have um, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone. And each one of them can teach you something very different. Uh, and I mean, for me, Antigone is an extremely powerful one because it's the story of a woman who literally stands up against the state in order to do what she believes is is a much more important moral code, follows a much more important moral code than the state code. And she rebels against the king in order to give her brother a proper burial after he's been uh, determined to be a, an enemy of the state. Um, and it's got really, again, powerful imagery. It's a, it's a powerful story. Uh, and it says something to the effect of following your your morals, your ethics, your virtues, the things that really matter, even when it's determined to be illegal. And I think that's a really important lesson because what is right and what is moral is not always the same as what is legal and what is illegal. And I think it's very important if we're to be moral people to follow moral codes rather than just legal codes. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I mean, there's a there's a major part of these stories that must be understood in general, which is that they were they served as teaching tools in many ways, as well as forms of entertainment. the The dialogue that the playwright is having with the audience is not so much just to say, "Look at this terrible thing that has happened to Oedipus or Antigone or the House of Atreus." He's saying, Look what happens when you do this, when you make the wrong choice, when you choose not to go the moral or ethical uh, path. And I think I think that's something that is somewhat lost. I mean, there's many things today where people will use things as teaching tools. You know, there's many people who actually I have friends who 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 show Star Trek The Next Generation to their kids to explain to them this is what it could be like, you know, if we all kind of sorted ourselves out. <laughs> and uh it's very much i know it sounds funny but uh but it is true there are many you know there's episodes like like the drumhead which is an episode in a courtroom and it's it's about um it's about it actually discusses legal versus illegal and what does it truly mean to be guilty and things like that and it's very much a teaching tool and you know oedipus rex is that for sure there is there is a point i think at which the chorus is kind of talking a little bit about that where he's you know the the there's a little bit of the the echoes of the action that actions that Oedipus took as a young man um on the road to um where he was going uh certainly is a bit of a teaching tool because they're speaking about his anger they're speaking about you know he lashes out and it turns out that he was the one who killed his father for example and things like that so I mean that's my interpretation I'd like to I'd like to check to make sure that I'm right as as yeah. you are absolutely I, I, expert uh, no, no. I mean, I, I, I don't know if that would be necessarily the teaching point I would take away from Oedipus uh, personally. I mean, it, it could be, but I think, um, you know, that level, 
it's hard sometimes for us as modern audiences to respect the levels of anger or frustration people had in the ancient world. So for instance, we talk about like the the rage of Achilles in, in the Iliad, and that seems like a kind of, to be frank, idiotic rage that he has. But at the same time, or, or the rage that Ajax has when he's denied Achilles' shield later on, um, and he goes mad and tries to murder everybody. Um, but to us, that seems like, I mean, he he did get get his comeuppance for that. But my point is, is that the the rage that we understand it sometimes is more justified in the ancient world than it would be by our standards because of the the sort of system of honor and and, and the way that they lived. But for me, Oedipus Rex, perhaps the the most noblest thing of it is that there's a lot that Oedipus didn't have in control when it happened. Um, there, a lot of it was sort of faded in a way that he he did kill his father, but he didn't know it was his father. He didn't want to kill his father. Likewise, the whole concept of the Oedipus complex is completely wrong because he didn't want to sleep with his mother. It was a complete accident. I mean, he was given the bride as, as a reward for, for saving the city. He didn't choose her. Um, he didn't know it was his mother. So he had all these things sort of happen to him um, completely out of his control. But when he starts to learn the truth, he, I think it's noble that he not only continues the process of learning the truth and trying to find out exactly what happened, even though it will destroy him, he then accepts responsibility for it and and takes his own actions to uh, atone for it. So I think that's a very noble response, personally. I mean, we can't control the sort of horrible things that might happen to us, but I thought he took a this sort of tainted actions that weren't his fault and then turned it into something noble. And, and to the ancient world, he won that nobility because in... Oedipus at Colonus, uh, the local towns are actually competing to let Oedipus die and be buried in their city-state because it will be an honor. I mean, that's a very unique that's a very unique view, viewpoint, and I and I certainly, I mean, I agree with your point entirely. It's, I mean, this is the thing about the classics that I think a lot of people. Uh, mistake as well as that you know you can learn like I just learned something from what you just described and certainly anybody who reads these can learn something new every single time there's so much to gain from reading the classics so I think I think I, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about one last type of um, writing which is it's not I don't know how to describe this writing actually and and I, I would appreciate if you could help me describe it but you have you know, we have uh, f- fictional writings or writings like, um, or plays, for example. So we've got the Odyssey or the Theban plays, for example. But there's um, another type of writing, which is which is almost a historical writing. It's, it's, it's almost like, a, it's almost like journalism, essentially. But for example, you know, Xenophon's memoirs of Socrates or conversations of Socrates, for example, which all it really does is it records the lives of eminent people of the time. I mean, there's a, there's literally a book from the time called lives of the eminent philosophers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, but I, it, you know, it's a bit of a, it's, it's, it's like a biography, but it's, 
it's it's not anyways i think as a dialogue i think that's also um somewhere that i think people should start um do you agree i mean certainly you can learn so much about the context of these famous people i mean i think one thing you might agree with me on is you have to take it with a grain of salt because a lot of the time these writings are writ are are actually written down years later well after that person has maybe even passed away but um but i think there's a lot of value in those uh what do you think Oh, definitely. I, I mean, Xenophon's a great example. Um, he's very approachable and, and readable. Uh, I probably would say go to Thucydides for a historian because the history of the Peloponnesian War is just another absolutely enthralling and, and important work. Um, Xenophon's maybe a little bit less respected as a historian than Thucydides is. But I think he's still very good. And, and you know, if you really want great stories, you can go to Herodotus. And uh, he's, <laughs> he's definitely a little bit less respected, again, as a historian, though he is getting proven more and more right these days, actually. So it, it is funny to see um, some of these guys get, get good in the end, be given a bit more respect that they, they deserve. But the, the historians are, are really interesting. We, we actually have a, an Essential Greeks course where we kind of, I like to think of it where we, we try to give the, the just the bare bones framework and it's got nine people that we discuss. And, you know, you have Homer. We actually do two episodes in Homer because he's so important. And then we, we basically just do this outline where we have, you know, the three tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, We've got the two historians, Herodotus and Thucydides, and then we got the three philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. Sorry, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And I think if you just had a basic understanding of those guys, you would have the the framework to understand, you know, a very important part of the Greek world. And remembering that that, that framework then influenced heavily heavily the Roman world and that in turn influenced the medieval world and that in turn influenced the enlightenment and and so on and and such. So those kind of that framework I think is personally is very good. And I think there is a trend right now where people are sort of bringing to light maybe previously undiscussed narratives. Uh, and I think that is wonderful and that it's just showing us more of the truth of ancient history. We're learning more about, you know, rural peoples. Like it, previously, we only focused on urban people. So now we're, we're actually excavating um, agrarian areas and, and sites to learn more about those sort of people, slaves, women, you know, all this sort of stuff. Uh, so we're just, we're learning more and more actually all the time about ancient history, which is, which is fantastic, but it is really helpful to put them in a broader context that allows you to know what people were referencing and, and what they were questioning, what they were accepting, you know, and, and a lot of stoicism is part of that structure in which you can learn what people accepted previously and what they rejected. And those are both really important for understanding the sort of the fundamentals of the philosophy. Well, I'd like to uh, wrap up today with you, Anya, by, by making sure that we do mention that um, 
if you are interested in checking out Anya's website, it's classicalwisdom.com and they have courses and resources and downloads and perks for being a member and they cover the classics from pretty much everything we've talked about today. So history, mythology, plays, everything. And there's, um, Anya, you're also, um, uh, you also have a podcast, which is Classical Wisdom Speaks. So uh, I'm going to certainly uh, suggest you check that out. So I'll add those links in the show notes. Um, and, you know, we'll wrap up today by saying, Anya, thank you very much for being uh, with us on the Modern Stoicism podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. And if I could just say one very last thing, because I just think it's so relevant, is that um, the founder of Stoicism, you know, Zeno Citium, he actually started his whole journey by going to an oracle and which the oracle told him that he should study the complexion of the dead. And he interpreted that as to read as much of the ancient literature as he could. So if that was good enough for Zeno, I think it's good enough for us. I'd like to thank Anya Leonard for being on the podcast today. If you'd like to find out more about Anya's work, head over to classicalwisdom.com. Or you can find her podcast, Classical Wisdom Speaks, on all major platforms, including YouTube. Classical Wisdom is also going to be hosting their first online symposium, October 24th to 25th. So check out classicalwisdom.com for more details. Thanks for listening to the Modern Stoicism podcast this week. If you'd like to learn more, head over to modernstoicism.com where you can find articles, courses, our Patreon, and other resources. This week on the Stoicism Today blog, Greg Sadler has written an article entitled Interview with Stoicon 2020 Speakers, William Irvin. You've been listening to the Modern Stoicism Podcast, the official podcast of modernstoicism.com. Check out all of our episodes at modernstoicismpodcast.buzzsprout.com. And if you like this content, consider rating us or giving us a thumbs up on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us on Patreon, where patrons get access to exclusive digital content. All music provided by bensound.com.